Hi friends and welcome to Robcast number eight. This one is called The Enduring Relevance, Astonishing Power and Unexpected Brilliance of the Bible. So this week I thought I'd go with a short title and uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, just now I went to close the door to my office so I could record this and my daughter is out in the other room playing. And I said to her, hey, I'm just gonna close the door, record this thing and then I'll be back out to play with you. And she looks up at me, smiles and shoots me in the face with a Nerf gun. So um, I'm playing injured <laughs> as if a, t a two inch Nerf bullet could injure you. Um, but you know, that's what's going on here today. And uh, actually, I actually have a studio audience um, John Eshelman, the Esh, is in the house. Perhaps you know him. Do you know the Esh? That's great, by the way. Do you know the Esh? That could be like a kid's book. You want to say hi? Hi, everybody. John, the Esh says hi. Uh, I was with uh, the Esh yesterday, and he said, you know, you ought to have a studio audience. You ought to have like, have like a few people there when you record your Robcast. And I was like, well, <laughs> what are you doing tomorrow? So um, I have a studio office audience of one, and it looks like he's already taking notes. So um, we'll find out what that's about. A couple of notes. Uh, this is an announcement of sorts. Tour announcement. Warning, tour announcement. Um, Pete Holmes and I uh, debuted our Together at Last two-man show a few weeks ago in LA, and we are taking it out on the road. We're gonna do eight cities around the US in April and May. So watch your Twitter, Instagram, Facebook feeds from Pete. And I, robbell.com, peteholmes.com, uh, later this week for access to presale on tickets and um, info about the cities. And uh, hopefully you live in one of the places we're coming to. And yes, it will be as fun as it sounds. And then those of you who live in UK, I'm coming to London for a two-day event. The end of uh, last day of March, first day of April, and I'll just be I'll be teaching for two days in like an interactive Q and A sort of format. And um, I've done a number of these events, and I, they're just such uh, they're so rewarding to be a part of. And so, if you uh, want to see me in London, would love to meet you then. Now, today, let's talk about the relevance of the Bible. Um, I started teaching the Bible when I was 21, so uh, about 23 years now, it is absolutely astonishing what is going on in the scriptures. And the reason why I'm doing this one today, and I assume this is the uh, further on down the road, I'll do more of these on the scriptures, simply because my experience has been a lot of people don't know how to think about the Bible. Um, many people only know how to think about the Bible in negative terms, like this book that's dragging everything backwards. Um, but that when I talk to people about what's going on, not just in, but through, under, and around the scriptures, people generally say, I've never heard that before. So I want to give you a different way to read the Bible and understand the Bible. Um, and I'm swinging for the fences here, but my experience has been is when people see this, it changes everything everything, not just for a book that's thousands of years old, but for how you see and understand your life and more specifically your spiritual life today in 2015. And we're going to do all that in about 24 minutes. Now, uh, here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the most offensive passage in the Bible. 
And it's important to start here because for a lot of people, um, maybe this is you, you know there's a New Testament and apparently that's when God is less grumpy because of Jesus. But everything to the left is pretty much um, Game of Thrones, right? How many of you have that sense of the Bible? Everything to the left is basically a lot of killing in the name of a higher power. And so my experience has been you have to go into the heart of the most awkward passages. Perhaps you've heard sermons where someone's trying to say, well, you don't understand. God told them to kill all the people because those people were bad. And you're like, that's your best explanation. Come on. Um, and you'll often find this. It's a sort of awkward, weird dance where people go, you know, it's the God, it's the word of God. And then they proceed to defend behaviors that we would say are called genocide, are abuses against human rights. But apparently because it's in the Bible, we don't just call it what it is. Um, so I want to give you a way to understand the scriptures that allows you to actually say what it is and not do any of this awkward dance. And yet at the same time, I want to show you something you may not have seen before. So the most offensive passage in the scripture, which I assume you already know, is Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10 through 14. You ready? Here it is. It's called, some passages it's called the rules for spoils of war. Um, in, the pa- in the translation I'm using, Deuteronomy 21, 10 has a heading, female captives. So we already know um, it's a passage about women's slaves. It says, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God hands them over to you and you take them captive, Suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman whom you desire and want to marry, and so you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head, pare her nails. Have you thrown up in your mouth yet, by the way? Anyway, I'll keep reading. Uh, she shall shave her head, pare her nails, discard her, her captive's garb, and shall remain in your house a full month, mourning for her father and mother. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. One more verse. But if you are not satisfied with her, you shall let her go free and not sell her for money. You must not treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Okay, did we manage to offend everybody? Obviously, if you're a woman, you're like, this is completely disgusting. But look at in four verses how low we got. The passage, of course, is written to men, and it says, if you conquer, if you go into battle against your enemies and you win, and as you're sort of rustling through the, the wreckage and you see a woman who used to be married to the guy you just killed, so her husband has just been slaughtered in battle, and you think she's attractive, sure, you can bring her home to your house and just have her shave her head and trim her nails and have her change her clothes, give her a month to be sad, and then go have sex with her, make her your wife, and then if you're not satisfied with her, if she doesn't perform well enough, then you can, uh, then you can just let her go free. Don't sell her as a slave, um, you know, because that would be degrading. Um, <laughs> I said that sarcastically, which I assume you picked up on. Um, and you must not treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. That's how the passage goes. What do you do with a passage like this. This is called the spoils of war passage. And it's basically, there were rules in the ancient Near East for spoils of war, which I think even nowadays we have like rules about war. If you're killing people and you're putting rules on it, it's all sort of messed up anyway, let's be honest. Um, 
But in this passage, the spoils of war passage, if you crush another army and you find the wife of one of the men you killed attractive, you can take her home with you and make her your wife. So we read it and we just want to throw up in our mouth. We're like, see, this is the problem, right? I assume you're listening going, exactly, this is the whole reason why the Bible is outdated, it's primitive, it's barbaric, it needs to be left behind. Now, let me add one historic detail to this. There were rules in the ancient Near East for spoils of war. The rules were when you crushed somebody, everything that was theirs is now yours, and they were all objects. It was all objects to do whatever you want with. So in this passage, when it says, bring her home and have her shave her head, that's a sign of mourning. And then it says, give her a month to grieve. That is acknowledging her as a human being. This was a radical idea. Because according to the law of the day, the woman was a piece of property to do whatever you wanted with. In this passage, you are to treat her like she is a human being. This was a massive massive new idea. Wait, wait, wait. She's not property. She's a person. And then it says, you are not to let her go free and sell her for money. Now, oftentimes a woman had absolutely no rights in the ancient Near East. So if you had this woman who was your property, essentially, and you were bored with her or she didn't perform as you wanted, then you could just cast her out. And she had, essentially, she would generally fall into prostitution because there was no other way for her to make her way in the world. But in this passage, you are to let her go free, which means you are to give her a certificate of divorce, which means you are to give her legal standing so that she doesn't have to resort to that. Now, what do we see there then? In this passage, there is movement forward. Now, do we have a lot of ways to go? Yes. Is it still primitive and barbaric? Yes. But it's actually a click forward. Deuteronomy 21 was a radical step forward for women's rights in its day. See, if you read the passage in 2015, looking back thousands and thousands of years, of course it's primitive and barbaric. But if you read it as a record of what the world was like at that time and what this passage was leading it into, this was actually a giant step forward. This passage reflects a giant step forward. Now, have we made a lot of steps since then? Yes, thank God. Do we, in regards to women's dignity and honor and equal pay and equality, do we have steps to go? Yes, of course. Now, then... Pull back with me. Imagine you have like a, a camera and you can focus back out. Do you see what we're getting at here? The Bible exists along a continuum of human growth in consciousness, human maturity, growing human awareness of the importance of rights, rights for women in this passage, exists along an ongoing continuum across history. And so this passage that when you read it in 2015 and look back, you look back and it seems so primitive. At the time, it was another step forward. Now, let me take you to another passage 
that you may have heard before about a man named Abram, who later has his name changed to Abraham, and he had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them. So are you, and so is the Esh. And uh, <laughs> look at that inside joke with you and with my studio audience of one. Now, notice Genesis chapter 12. We're very, very, very early in the scriptures, and this passage is called called the call of Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, in a future Robcast, we're going to look at exactly what the Lord says to Abram. But verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told them. Now, perhaps you've heard the story before. God says to Abraham, go from your country and go to a land I'm going to show you. Go to a new unknown place and then Abraham went. Now, this is a classic example of a passage. You read it and go, yeah, God says to go somewhere, so the guy goes somewhere. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. The dominant human consciousness had what's called a cyclical view of history, which means everything that has happened has already happened before, and everything that will happen in the future will be a repeat of what's already happened. Picture like a great circle of life in which there are only a few things that can happen, and this thing will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, then you'll have kids, and that will happen to them, and then that will happen, and then that will happen, then they will have kids. Dominant human understanding was that there are only a few things that happen and they keep repeating. So in this story, when it says that Abram was told, go to a new place and Abram went, this was a brand new idea that you could step out of this repeating cycle of life and you could actually experience something new that hadn't happened before. See, the idea was so radical and became so normal human understanding that we read the passage and miss that ideas that you take for granted were once giant revolutionary steps forward in human consciousness. By the way, if you find this way of reading the Bible in these understandings interesting, I cannot recommend enough. Um, Thomas Cahill has a book called The Gift of the Jews. Um, Thomas Cahill, C-A-H-I-L-L. If you find the background and history of the scriptures interesting, and um, he has an excellent book on this. And by the way, he does a section on Genesis 12, which will blow your mind. So when you read Genesis 12, and it just says, God told a man to leave, and so a man went. This was a massive step forward. This was an idea so radical that people didn't even really have categories for it. Now, let's do one more, and then I'll begin to uh, sort of draw some conclusions about what this has to do with relevance for 2015. Um, Genesis has uh, an opening. It has an opening chapter, Genesis chapter 1, which is actually a poem. Now, here's what's interesting. The Genesis story emerged in Babylon. And the Babylonians thousands of years ago had a way of explaining the world, how we got here and how the world was created, the engine of the universe, essentially. And their story was called the Enuma Elish. And if you, if you Google Enuma Elish 
and images, you can see they've discovered plates, like literal etchings of this story. But across the ancient world, people told stories to explain what we're doing and why we're here and how it all came to be. Kind of like we do now. What's the point of it all? People have been asking for thousands of years, what's the point of it all? Now, the Babylonians had a creation story, which was their explanation for how we got here and what we're doing called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, there was a battle between gods and goddesses. And the one god, Marduk, crushed Tiamat, this goddess. And when he crushed this goddess, he took her carcass and ripped it in half and made the earth with her carcass. Are you with me? So in the ancient Babylonian worldview, if you were to say the person on the street, how did we get here? He'd say, well, there was a giant battle and the one God ripped apart the carcass of the other and from the carcass created the heavens and the earth. How did we get here? Violence and carnage. Now, it is in Babylon that this group of Hebrews find themselves. They find themselves in exile and they're surrounded by this story, but they have a story in their bloodstream. Their people have been telling. They have their own creation story. It's actually a poem. And in this poem, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. So they have an idea of one God. That alone is mind-blowing. By the way, Babylonians also worship the sun and the moon. In this poem for these Hebrews, their God creates the sun. Now it says when God creates the sun, you realize what this was. This is like a polemic. You all worship the sun. Our God made your God. So this poem is loaded. It's got political implications. It's, it's clever. It's subversive. And in this poem, this God gets off on creating. This God makes this and says, that's good. This God makes this and says, that's good. This God loves diversity and beauty and aesthetics. This fruit was pleasing to the eye and things taste good. And this God makes diversity, trees, and not just trees, but trees that produce fruit, and the fruit has seeds, and the seed produce more trees. It's this exploding, vital, the poem has a rhythm, a cadence, a beat to it. And what is the engine of the poem? Joy. What is the point? Apparently, this God creates because this God loves to create things. What's the engine of the universe in this poem? Joy. It's not a science textbook. It's a poem. It's not trying to convey literal truths about a literal six days. It's asking a much deeper, broader, higher question. What's the engine of the universe? What's driving the thing? And see, this poem came about because the dominant understanding was we're here because of violence and chaos. And this Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth poem emerged asking a different question. What are we doing here? Is it because of violence and carnage or divine creative joy? So do you see that the question Genesis 1 raised was a provocative revolutionary question for the culture of its day, which I would argue is a question in 2015. What do you think is the engine of the universe? Carnage and destruction or joy and creativity? Crushing your opponents or overflowing generosity? Which is a better way to view the world. See, the Bible was written by real people in real places 
at real times. The Bible is a library of progressive books. It's poems, letters, gospels, accounts. It's a library of progressive books. So when someone says, well, what does the Bible say? A better question would be, what do we see written in the pages of the books of this progressive library? It reflects growing human consciousness. So if you were to just randomly pick verses out, let's take the Deuteronomy 21 passage, the spoils of war passage. If somebody today said, if they had a podcast, they said, I'm telling you why it's so important when you conquer your enemies and you find a beautiful woman to enslave her, we'd all be like, that's crazy. If you take random passages and you remove them from the context and the story that they are in the flow of, you could actually use a passage. Right now, if you started telling us we need to follow Deuteronomy 21, that would be a step back, correct? So a passage that at one time was a step forward can easily, if you still yank it out of its context, become a step backwards. Now, I want to talk to those of you who have sat in church services and the preacher was using a passage in such a way that made you think, this is a step backwards. This is for those of for those of you who have sat there thinking, wait, that can't be, and saying this is the it's the word of God, it's the word of God, it's the word of God. It is possible for the word of God to be mishandled in such a way that it's dragging things backwards instead of forwards. Does that help put language to some of your experiences? It's possible to be quoting the Bible and insisting that it's inspired and inerrant and it's God's word, but you're actually taking things backwards because you've missed the spirit moving through the pages, calling us to greater freedom, love, inclusion, and compassion. Oh, by the way, when people do the like, uh, this is a side note, or the Old Testament God's all angry and then the New Testament God's all full of love. Like what would be an example? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, where Jesus says, love your, your neighbor. You know where love your neighbor comes from? Leviticus 19. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's quoting Leviticus 19. So when people give you those lame, like, well, it was all bad and then it got good, um, they haven't read it. So it's really, really important when you hear people talking about the Bible to find out if they've actually read it. It is a library of progressive books reflecting growing human consciousness. Are there passages that are incredibly barbaric and primitive? Yes, there are. Of course there are. People were incredibly barbaric and primitive. By the way, those of you, some of you, the ones a little quicker on the draw are like, yeah, but we're still kind of primitive and barbaric. Exactly. Exactly. So when people stand in judgment on how awful the Bible was and what were people like in that time, um, a bit of humility is helpful. Now, thirdly then, and this one, uh, this one can take a while to sink in, but oftentimes I will get questions from people who are about the Bible who say, why did God do fill in the blank? Why didn't God skip the sacrifice system? Why did God slaughter all the people? Why did God, um, those questions, why did God do it that way? you'll never get a good answer. You can't get a good answer if you have a bad question. You have to read, the Bible 
is first and foremost a book written by real people in real places and real times. You have to start with the human. A much, much better question that might actually get you some interesting answers is, it's not why why did God why did God why didn't God just skip the Adam and Eve sacrificial system? I have a question for you. Why didn't you skip junior high? <laughs> why didn't you skip your junior year? Why didn't you skip being seven? You see, the Bible reflects growing human consciousness and development. The Bible is a larger picture of you. You've grown and you can't skip steps. It's Human development takes time. So a much better question than why did God do it that way is this. Why did people find this story meaningful? Why did people write down that story? Why did people see the need to include that poem or account? Start with the human and you'll find yourself at the divine. Start with the human question at the heart of this book because it's a messy, ugly, bloody, beautiful, exotic, mysterious record of human beings growing in human consciousness, compassion, and understanding. Here's an example. You'll often hear the story about Abraham and Isaac where Abraham's told to offer his son Isaac and what a primitive, barbaric thing. What kind of man could ever offer his own son. Well, a couple observations. Number one, when God tells Abraham to offer his son, does Abraham say, what are you talking about? I don't even know how to do that. That's the craziest thing ever. No. It says Abraham got the supplies and set out to do it. Now, what does that tell you from a human? Read the story from a human perspective. If Abraham doesn't need any help on instructions, then apparently this was something that he had seen, done, or knew about. Why? Because in the ancient world, you had to keep the gods on your side. You had to offer something valuable. Ah! Um, people were constantly offering tribute and sacrifice on altars in order to keep the gods happy. And you never know, because the gods are always angry and the gods are always demanding. So you never know where you stand with the gods. So ultimately, what's lurking on the edges of the Hebrew scriptures? Child sacrifice, because ultimately it's going to call you, the ancient gods and the ancient systems are going to call you to offer your most valuable thing, which is going to be your firstborn. So when Abraham is told to offer his firstborn, that's what all the gods asked of you. It was all about you providing a sacrifice to keep the gods happy. But in this Genesis story about Abraham and Isaac, right as he's about to offer his son, this God says, no, don't. And this God provides a lamb. Now, if you read the story, see what a primitive, barbaric God, and by the way, lots of people nowadays point to the story as a reason why you shouldn't read the Bible and completely miss the point of the story. The storyteller is telling you about a new kind of God, a new God who doesn't demand your firstborn. And this God, it says, provides uh, an animal for Abram to offer. Now, is it all primitive and barbaric? Sure, but it's also a revolutionary, mind-blowing step forward because this story said this God, because all of the systems were built on you providing for the gods, this in order to earn their favor, 
This story is about a God who provides for you and insists that you already have this God's favor. Instead of what do you have to do to make the gods happy and earn their favor, this God says, I've already provided, can you trust me? Mind-blowing new idea in human history. So when people use these passages as evidence of look how primitive and barbaric it is, of course it's primitive and barbaric. It's also quantum leaps forward in growing, evolving human consciousness. Which brings me to you, my friend. In many ways, the Bible is the story of all of us. Can people change? Can they grow? Can they leave old patterns behind? Can you become more loving? Remember earlier, like the Ten Commandments, could you like not kill each other, right? Could you <laughs> do not kill, which is basically, could you please, could you all not take each other's lives? By the New Testament, what do you have? Greater love has no one than this. And they lay down their life for another. Well, to go from could you not kill each other to could you love with such devotion that you would give your life for another, that's a fairly significant growth curve. Would you agree? Now, do we have a long ways to go? Yes. Have we made progress? Yes. Does it often feel like two steps backwards, two steps forwards, one step back, three steps forward, four steps back? Does it feel like humanity, like things are getting better, but they're also falling apart at the same time? Yeah. Is there spirit at work through all of it, drawing us forward, inviting us to bigger hearts, inviting us to love, inviting us to leave behind sinful, destructive, toxic patterns of behavior so that we might experience divine life all the more. See, that's the question. What is at work at human hist- in human history? What is at work in the scriptures? Is there something, a force moving through human history inviting us to a better future? Is there something moving in you, inviting you, challenging you, confronting you, wooing you, provoking you, a bit like music you hear in the other room when you think, I got to hear more of that? See, the Bible raises the question, are we alone or Is there somebody on our side pulling us, inviting us, challenging us all? And how it happens is it happens click by click by click, step by step by step. Do we have a long way to go? Of course. Have we come a long way? Yes. The Bible is a library of progressive books. At its core, it insists that human beings can change, that they can see things in a new way. When Jesus comes along and he says, repent, he's essentially saying, I want you to see things in a new way. The Jesus story insists that we are not alone. The Jesus story insists 
that something is at work within human history. It has always been at work. It is a mystery hidden in the very fabric of creation. And it's pulling us, guiding us, empowering us to a better tomorrow. So when you hear somebody talk about or try to defend the Bible or, or insist that it's inerrant, they are arguing for the wrong kind of book. It's better than that. To argue about whether it's perfect or not, whether it has errors or not, whether I have a higher view of the Bible than that. I believe it's more relevant, that it has greater power than simply arguing about whether or not it has errors. It's the wrong discussion. The better discussion and the better question is, is this what it looks like when human beings grow? And in my experience, and I bet in yours, what does your growth look like? It's a little messy. It's a little bloody. It's a little unexpected. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. But it is thrilling. And it is real. And it is happening now. May you, my brothers and sisters, have patience with yourself. May you, in seeing these bonkers, weird, funny, odd, puzzling stories in the Bible see resonance with your own funny, awkward, weird, strange journey. Because it is, isn't it? May you find solidarity in the funkiness of these stories, connecting them with your own. May you see the grace of a God who just keeps inviting us to the next click, to the next step, to the next new idea, to the next action, to the next thing that we turn away from because we've seen something better. May you be filled with hope. May you never read the Bible the same way again. And may grace and peace be with you.